pushing buttons and pulling triggers. This is Gun Funny. Welcome to Gun Funny episode 285. Today I'm going to chat with Travis White from Frack, which I imagine, since we have so much to talk about, that's all we're going to cover this show. So hopefully you guys don't mind that we're taking out some of those other segments. I'm your host, Ava Flannell. And Travis, how are you doing? Doing well, Ava. Thanks for having me on. Of course. I'm excited to get you on. Uh, but before we start talking about you and Frack, I'm going to talk about Smith & Wesson real quick. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, definitely check out Smith & Wesson's new Equalizer. I recently just wrote an article about it in Concealment Magazine. It is out. You can get it at Walmart, Barnes & Noble, a few places like that, which if not, you could just do a Google search. But it's ultimately, it's a great gun. And I've noticed that with a lot of my students bringing the gun in to, you know, for like a basic pistol class, it's actually worked out really well for them. It's kind of the best of both worlds of like the Shield Plus and the Shield Easy. It has the mag capacity of the Shield Plus, but it requires almost the same effort to rack the slide as the Easy, which is almost non-existent. You know, it's not like racking the slide on most guns. It's compatible with Shield Plus mags. And then it also comes with three different size mags, which are 10 round, 13 round. And then they also have the newest 15 round mags. And since the mags don't have those easy tabs like the easy mags have, Smith & Wesson included a Maglula speed loader to make it easier to load those mags. The slide comes optic ready and has really nice big serrations on it, which really give you like a nice grip when you're racking that slide. It has an internal hammer like the easy, so it also has that grip safety. You could also get, you know, like with most Smith & Wesson pistols, you can get it with or without the active safety. I always opt to get it without. But best of all, MSRP on the equalizer is $599, which is a pretty good deal. I mean, you're looking at maybe $525 in stores. Check it out, smith-wesson.com. Learn the things you never knew on Deconstructing the Industry. All right. So, Travis, before we start talking about FRAC, which is F-R-A-C, if anyone's wondering, I want to know a little bit about your background. Okay, sure. Uh, so, I've had this position since January of 2021. Prior to taking the job as the president of FRAC, I practiced law in Idaho. And I, I'm in North Dakota now, but I had previously practiced in Idaho. I was the chief deputy for a prosecutor's office in rural southern Idaho. Prior to that, obviously, law school and, and some other things. Um, let's see. Veteran, Iraq and Afghanistan. I was in the infantry. Did a, Iraq in 09, Afghanistan in 2010. Yeah, so that's a little bit about me. <laughs> nice. And did you work within any, like, in the firearms industry previously before joining FRAC? I had done some, yeah, some work for a brief period of time in the industry. Um, yeah. And I'm assuming, so is FRAC, is it ultimately owned by Alex um, no, from SB Tactical? So, so that's, 
that's a good that's a good question and the answer is no uh, oh, it's okay. not owned by, it's not owned by anybody it's a it's a non-stock non-profit corporation uh, we're also a tax exempt organization under 501c6 so it's a basically a business league or trade organization but it, you know as a non-stock we don't have owners the closest thing and it's not even that close but the closest thing we have is is our membership right so our members that's who the organization ultimately serves as our member companies and to to better their conditions in the business industry for or the industry for them in terms of the regulatory landscape but we don't have any we don't have stock we're not a closely held or publicly traded entity none of that interesting okay yeah i didn't know that then let's talk about frac what does it stand for and why was it created Sure. Firearms Regulatory Accountability Coalition, Inc. is the full name. And it was created in the tail end of 2020. And it was basically the the brainchild of some key people in the industry that came together and said, you know, we need to have an, uh, an organization that's focused at uh, strictly on regulatory accountability predominantly with the ATF. Mm-hmm. Okay. Technically, technically we're not just focused on ATF, anything that deal, you know, the, any, any regulatory body that, that impacts the industry at the federal level would be something that's fair game, but 99.9% of the time it's ATF we're talking about, but mm-hmm. they, the, these stakeholders that put together frack sort of looked at the landscape and they looked at what was coming with the new administration coming in and all that. And, or potentially coming in. This was all prior to the election, but they looked at the potential, potentially changing landscape and said, you know, let's put together this organization. And ultimately a contact I had reached out to me and I accepted the position. Nice. And then what are you guys like, I know that you guys right now are in a current lawsuit um, against ATF, but is that your primary focus is like anytime that they overstep, you guys are filing lawsuits? Well, we do we do litigation. We've got two lawsuits going against ATF. We filed one in early January and then one in early February, yeah, early to mid February. So that that's our we have two lawsuits. We do a mix. So we've up until this point we've been focusing mainly on trying to work with Congress and educate members of Congress as to some of these issues. We've also frack and those that are involved in it have been able to try to resolve some minor things here and there with the agencies. So, I mean, we're, we're focused on if we can avoid a fight, it's always better to win a fight by avoiding it than mm-hmm. to win a fight by, by fighting it. Right. So, yeah. you know, that's sort of our approach and, and we've, yeah, so we've, we've done uh, some lobbying. We've done various uh, staff briefings, congressional staff briefings. We've gotten the ATF accountability act introduced twice. Now this is, Obviously, a new session of Congress we're in now, so it's it's uh, been reintroduced, and uh, it was introduced in the previous session. It's bipartisan, co-sponsored by Dan Crenshaw and Henry Cuellar, both the Texas representatives, Republican and a Democrat. Yeah, so we 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 do a kind of a variety of things. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the two lawsuits that you guys recently filed. What are those? Okay, so the first one is Frack. And then one of its member companies, Franklin Armory, mm-hmm. we came together on this lawsuit. And then you got your sort of your standard ATF defendants, Merrick Garland as the, his official capacity as the attorney general, simply because ATF is a sub-agency underneath the DOJ. 
and, and Garland heads the DOJ. So, so, you know, he's there, you've got the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives itself, and then Director Dietelbach in his official capacity as the director of the ATF. So those are the three defendants on both lawsuits. Both of them are seeking declaratory and injunctive relief. The Franklin suit centers around the and by the way, these suits are on our website, litigation tab, fracaction.org. Check it out and read the pleadings. But uh, the the Franklin suit centers around what's known as the uh, like the classification letter determination process. Mm-hmm. So that's your firearms and ammunition technology division where companies will submit in a request for classification of a product or firearm under federal law. And this is a process that it's key to the industry, and it has been rife with abuse by ATF over the years. So this lawsuit with Franklin aims to hold ATF accountable for that abuse. It's a very simple way to put that. Mm-hmm. And then the other – yeah, the other – no, I'm sorry. Did you have any questions? No. Yeah, no. I was just going to say, and then the other lawsuit – if the other suit, same defendants. Now, the plaintiffs in this suit, it's frack, obviously. And then we've got 25 states, uh, and the state coalition is sort of being headed by West Virginia's attorney general. Mm-hmm. It's Patrick Morrissey. I, so I sincerely appreciate his efforts there. Uh, we've got SB Tactical as a plaintiff, BNT USA, and then a gentleman named Richard Cicero. And for those that are unaware, uh, Mr. Cicero is – what I not only is he a friend of mine, but I consider him to be the nation's foremost adapt. What's known as adaptive shooting instructor. So adaptive shooting is sort of a catch-all phrase, as I understand it, for various types of disability or handicapped shooting techniques, mm-hmm. right? So he teaches students of his how to overcome whatever limitation they may have in terms of being able to, you know shoot effectively and defend themselves and, and enjoy the second amendment. Hmm, nice. Um, so he's one of, he's our, one of our plaintiffs on that suit. And this case uh, deals with obviously the hot button issue, issue right now is the, the arm brace rule that was promulgated by ATF. And you guys filed this in North Dakota, correct? Yes. We filed this where frack is located. Oh, okay. That's why I was kind of wondering why it was in North Dakota. That makes sense. Then let's talk about this, which is really the main reason that I had you on. I've kept my listeners pretty up to date, but I definitely want to hear it from your perspective. And, you know, if you could just tell us where you're at with the brace ban right now. Sure. So there is a. All right. So we filed the initial suit. What I mean by that in legal terms, we filed the complaint and all the exhibits that go with it. So the initial filing packet that mm-hmm. that hit the docket weeks ago. We've got a motion for preliminary injunction. So like a temporary injunctive relief motion on the table as well. The government has then responded asking for additional time. I believe they asked for an additional week. To be able to respond to that, mm-hmm. I don't have the docket in front of me at this moment, but my, I can pull that up actually. But my understanding is that that motion has been granted by the court. And if it hasn't, it likely will, if I had to guess. While we're waiting for you to pull that up, so I'm um, just kind of some backstory. Essentially, I think what really I think annoys a lot of people one, it's, you know, complete overreach from ATF, but 
like SB Tactical, for example, who was one of my sponsors, they have so many letters from ATF saying that like, you know, this brace is definitely legal. It doesn't classify as an SBR. It's totally fine to shoulder it and shoot it. And then, you know, a few years later, they just kind of backtrack on that. And they're like, hey, we're actually going to change the definition. And now we're requiring everybody who has a brace and correct me if I'm wrong at any time. Now we're requiring everybody who has a brace on their pistol to go and register it as an SBR. They're waiving the $200 tax fee, although to my knowledge, they can come back and charge you for that at any time. And essentially you have, well, now how many days do we have? Well, (laughs) it was originally, it was 120 days, right? Well, I I want to be careful how I answer that. You know, there's so many ambiguities in this rule. Yeah. So there's, you know, the rule came out on the 31st of January. You've got 60 days where they say they will not enforce and that's, they will not enforce the rule for 60 days. And that's to give, uh, ostensibly, they, they do that to give Congress time under the Congressional Review Act to consider its options because Congress gets sort of a they get sort of a veto ability when a certain dollar threshold mm-hmm. is exceeded by an administrative rule. All right. So that's the CRA. And then the 120 day point is where they're saying they'll they'll take uh, you know a tax exempt registration application by a, a person with a braced pistol that falls under the, that supposedly falls under this rule. So there's, there's sort of three key dates there. Now let's, let's unpack that as I understand it. And my, my, the attorneys certainly understand it far more in depth than I do. So I, I, I don't mean to hope I don't contradict anything they've said based on my understanding, but yeah. you know, the, the ATF by my reading has said that on the day the rule dropped, any firearms under that meets the requirements of that rule to be an SBR is an SBR as of that date. Okay. As of that date, immediately is an SBR. Now they say they're not going to enforce the rule for 60 days thereafter. And then for that 120 days after the the rule dropped, they won't, uh, or they will accept the form ones without a tax payment. Okay. So when you look at that, there's a lot of complications that can come up in the middle of this right now. Um, I'm assuming most of the people that, that listen to your show are, are end consumers. They're not you know, necessarily an FFL or a mm-hmm. business, although there may be some businesses or FFLs that are, that are listening and that's, and that's great. So a few things on this, right. You know, with an SBR, right. You, you need to have permission to cross state lines with an SBR. It's known as a form 20. It's usually, usually it's historically been about a one month turnaround time. I don't know what it's currently at right now. I know when I've done them for my personal stuff in the past, it was about a month turnaround for me mailing that off to me getting it back. But you need to have a, you need to under the gun control act to cross the state line with an SBR. You have to have approval from the ATF. Okay. In advance. And that's true of four. It's, it's not true of all categories and NFA items, suppressors and AOWs, don't need a form 20 to temporarily cross state lines, but SBRs do. So this begs the question, you see where I'm going with this, right? Mm-hmm. This is an SBR immediately, or a braced pistol is, is supposedly now an SBR according to the ATF immediately upon the promulgation of this rule. So, okay, we're going to give you 120 days to register that, they say, 
But what about enforcement of all these collateral things? Like if you cross state lines with that in the meantime, are they saying, you know, that's not an issue? Are they saying that's not an issue? I, by my reading of it, it technically would be, mm-hmm. you know, now they've said they're not going to enforce the rule for 60 days. So the ultimate thing I'm, I'm getting at here is a lot of folks put emphasis on that 120 day marker, like, you know, almost like it's a zero or a one, right? If you're after the 120 days, there's a problem before the 120 days, no problem. Mm-hmm. I don't look at it so simply. Okay. I, I, I actually focus personally on that 60 day marker of they've said they're not going to enforce this until the 60 day marker, you know? So to me, that's the, that's the critical date is after 60 days, even if they're still taking your tax exempt registration form for another 60 days thereafter, well, they're willing to enforce the rule at the 60 day point, which in my mind would mean potentially prosecuting for crossing state lines without pre-approval from ATF. Uh, you don't, I mean, it, I, it's, I can't even begin to try to unpack the state ramifications for this because a lot of states incorporate SBR rules at the state level and they sort of look to ATF's definitions in some ways. So if you're good with the feds, you're good with them. Mm-hmm. Well, well, if you're within this period, like at what point would a state potentially step in and say, that's an SBR, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's interesting. I actually did not know about the 60 days. Yeah. It, it, it's a real mess. It's a real mess. Ava. Yeah. Hey, Travis, I'm going to take a quick break. Talk about Mantis. Mantis Laser Academy is a great visible way to train affordably and safely indoors with your firearm. Their standard kit comes with a choice of calibers for the laser. Obviously, you know, it's caliber specific, a carrying case, two tripods and phone holders, and then the target stands. And all of that is $150 or you can get the portable kit for only $99. It gives you everything that you need to practice with your smartphone app and improve your skills without the cost of ammo. Your system is the most robust that I've seen or used so far. It gives you tons of insights on your shooting and it gives you tips on what you're doing wrong. Like if you're too much trigger finger, too little, maybe you're slapping the trigger and anything else. The app includes a bunch of drill options that you can run as well as fun practice options to make these interesting. It currently has 14 modes, including dual modes. So if your friend has one, you guys can pair up for some friendly competition. And then from what I've heard, they have a lot more in development. Check these out at mantisx.com. Okay, so what do you, let's go back a little bit. So for one, I don't really understand why ATF even feels the need to do this or why even SBRs are a big deal. I mean, even suppressors, I think it's so dumb to, you know, to make all these like NFA items. For one, you know, it's kind of going off track a little bit, but suppressors, it doesn't make it like silent. They're not, you know, they're not silencers. It still makes noise. So it's not like the movies where you could just go around and like shoot people silently. It just makes it a little bit more pleasant for your ears, especially if you're shooting next to somebody who, you know, may or may not have a suppressor. But then we're going back to, okay, AR pistols. I mean, are people just saying like, oh, it's just easier to hide like under your jacket or something like that? Because most people, most mass shootings have been carried out. Let's say they are carried out with rifles. They're not 
AR pistols that they're carrying them out with. It doesn't like, I guess this is what I'm like. I'm just kind of at a sort of just a loss for like the thought process behind this as to why now suddenly, you know, one, why SBRs are now suddenly like have to be like in its own classification and, you know, it's kind of deemed as like more deadly. Sure. So like, I don't know. I'm just like, I'm just kind of baffled. Yeah. So I guess we can take a brief walk down memory lane with, uh, with some, some of the legal history in the United States on the national firearms act. Mm -hmm. It's a 1930s era, like a prohibition era, 1930s law. As most people know, it's still referred to colloquially as the NFA of 34, it was technically repealed and reenacted in 1968 as Title II of the Gun Control Act. So the original NFA that most people think of, the 1934, has been repealed and then reenacted in 68. So it's a new – but it basically kept a lot of the same provisions and, and just kept on moving forward through history, right? So be that as it may, I, you know, I still think of it as NFA 34 because that's when it all started. And you – know, Congress came up with this scheme to create a tax, and it was it was a prohibitive tax in that era, right? The, the two hundred dollar making and transfer tax. There have been some slight adjustments throughout history to the various transfer taxes and stuff, and and mainly around the AOW category. At one point, I think it was like a dollar or two for a transfer. Now it's five dollars for a transfer of an AOW, but the rest of it has pretty much been left untouched. Okay, so. $200 today is like a fee, right? But $200 in 1934, you know, you got the depression, you got the depression going, you got all this, right? Like $200, you know, that, that was, that was, you know, the equivalent of, I think thousands of dollars in today's money. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was designed to be prohibitive. So now why, why would they do it that way? Instead of just passing a blanket ban on NFA articles, right? Why, if they're, if their goal, if Congress's goal in the 30s, ostensibly was to try to ban these things. Why, you know, SBRs, machine guns, all of it, uh, short barrel shotguns. Why would they create a tax as a mechanism to do that? Well, the answer is 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 somewhat simple, I think, and that is that the legal landscape, in terms of the Supreme Court's um, interpretation of the Interstate Commerce Clause, was more narrow back then. So. The feds, you know, the, the Congress only has the authority specifically granted to it by the Constitution. Uh, everything else, is, as we know, under the Tenth Amendment, is reserved to the states and the people, respectively. So, the two big authorities they use in the gun realm, the gun regulation realm, is they use the Taxing and Spending Clause, and then they use the Interstate Commerce Clause. Okay, Interstate Commerce Clause has since been expanded and contorted throughout history to mean. Virtually anything with any minute nexus to interstate commerce, like if a gun once upon a time crossed state lines or was made in a different state, like poof, it, it is subject to federal rules. So say, so say the, the the courts. Okay, it used to not be that way. Interstate commerce used to mean literally regulating commerce that was in in motion, not just some item that tangentially had ever crossed state lines. Well, you know. The courts have expanded federal power in this regard. So at the time, the taxing and spending clause was the mechanism that um, Congress had to go with in order to achieve some of these goals, like by to, to ban something and or effectively ban something, I should say. 
So that's why they, they, they made it a tax. So the NFA is actually codified in Title 26 of the U.S. Code, which for, for anyone that's not aware, Title 26 is the Internal Revenue Code. Okay, The Gun Control Act, the other provisions of it, are codified in Title 18, which is the Criminal Code. You see what I'm getting at? Mm-hmm. So, so they've they've kept up the illusion throughout history that this is like a tax law that is that is to generate revenue, and that that the registry, the National Firearms Registration and Transfer Record, the NFRTR, that's the NFA registry, and again, that's that's where NFA articles are registered. Not all guns, just NFA firearms. That so say so say the government through history. They've kept up this. Um, they, they've maintained appearances by saying that, well, that that exists to enforce the NFA. Like we can't – how do we know if people paid the tax if we can't track who has the who has the gun and who had the gun, right? Mm-hmm. How do we know if they paid the transfer tax? We have to have this registry, so they say, right? That's their justification that they've peddled in courts throughout history. I think any rational person can look at the NFA and understand that it ain't about getting $200, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, now, with that, I, I will point out to your listeners: there's, a, there's an interesting article I think is worth the read, and it's called the. It's a law review article. It's called "The Peculiar Story of United States versus Miller." It's written by a gentleman named Brian L. Fry, F. R. Y. E., University of Kentucky College of Law, and this article goes through the history of the United States versus Miller, which was the first Supreme Court test of the NFA. And it occurred in the late 30s, I believe 39. And you know, Miller had been arrested for possession of a sawed-off shotgun. Ultimately, some lower courts said the NFA did not pass go, did not pass constitutional muster, and the Supreme Court ended up reversing. But it's not that simple. The United States government, as as the historical record. As it shows, but you know, it's sort of beneath the surface here. It's down in the, the nitty-gritty details, but you know, the US government actually showed up unopposed to the US Supreme Court. And what was that called again? The article? The peculiar the art- what? The peculiar story of United States versus Miller. And and it talks about and, and the gentleman who wrote this article cites some of the various uh docket entries and various lower level records of the courts and stuff and and paints a more clear picture of how that case went down about how the attorney for for miller ended up not showing up to argue that and i believe miller was killed mr miller was killed prior to this case being argued in front of the u.s supreme court so here's the u.s government defending one of its largest assaults on the second amendment in front of the u.s supreme court defendant miller died about a month or so prior, as I recall, don't quote me on those dates, right? But mm-hmm. I believe it was about a month or so prior to, to, to oral argument in front of the court, guy dies and the U.S. government rolls into the United States Supreme Court unopposed. Lawyer familiar didn't show up to argue his client's case. Client's dead. I guess the guy wasn't getting paid or something, so he didn't show up. Uh, you know, So you know, the U.S. government was able to go into the Supreme Court and argue the constitutionality of, of the NFA unopposed. Hmm. And they, as part of their arguments, they said that um, there was no military application of sawed-off shotguns or short-barreled shotguns. We all know that's nonsense, right? Like anybody who, who, who knows military gear, military equipment, even historically, the historical equivalents back in the day, 
knows that these things have a military application and that that was less than candid assertions by the U.S. government in front of the Supreme Court there in 1939. So, yeah. Did they say how this guy Miller died? I don't recall. I mean, my understanding is the guy was – he might have been involved in like the mob, you know, back in the day, right? Like prohibition was a little bit dicey. Yeah. So (laughs) you can fill in the blanks there. Yeah. But I don't don't know. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So that's a little walk down memory lane where – but yeah, so so the Congress had thought that, you know, at least their, their supposed public policy argument was that, you know, NFA type guns, these various guns they delineated, you know, they 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 think that they have uh, an inherent criminal nature to them or something, and therefore should be basically effectively banned. Again, they use the tax code to try to accomplish that for other reasons of that era, but effectively the intent was to try to ban these things as a result of their perception. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, as we, as we look at history since then, we see that that's not the case. I mean, firstly, we see clear as day, the U.S. government's assertions in Miller are patently untrue. These weapons, you know, short-barreled items and machine guns, obviously, and grenade launchers and these sort of various, various NFA articles uh, do have a military application. So, you know, the, the, the Miller court's ruling that only weapons with a military application are are subject to the you know the militia nexus covered by the second amendment well that would apply to nfa articles clearly so you know miller is a has become a peculiar case that gets cited by both sides the anti-gun people cite it based on its holding that the nfa is constitutional the pro-gun side always cites it as the verbiage of it where they talk about how military type weapons are subject to protection under the second amendment guns that could be used for malicious service Mm -hmm. okay so you know there's there's that Hmm. very interesting i'm going to take another quick break real quick talk about caldwell As you guys know, spring's right around the corner, even though it feels like sometimes it's not, but it is right around the corner. So it's time to dust off your range, add some steel that you can use all summer long. And like, if you're going to use it all summer long, obviously it's best to get it now before the end of summer. Right now, Caldwell has their big 13-inch octagon on sale for only $64.05. Don't ask me why there's, you know, that five cents, but it is $64.05, which is pretty good. They also have several options to hang them, including like their two by four hangers, the T-post hangers, and then straps ranging anywhere from $21.99 to $24.99. They added new target shapes this year as well. They have the crow, the prairie dog, the deer, a coyote, which I actually mistook for a corgi, which at the time, you guys, you know, can't blame me because peaches, my dog was with a corgi and well, we thought that the corgi got peaches pregnant. So there's a little concern. So as you could understand why I mistook that coyote for a corgi, <laughs> but that's not to say I don't like corgis. I like all dogs. But anyways, if you guys want to check this out, head on over to caldwellshooting.com. Remember to use the code gunfunny10 and you're going to get 10% off your entire order. And that is gunfunny10, all one word. Let's go back to the case now that you guys filed against ATF. So what are some of the details that you've specifically challenged in the case of how ATF is like violating the law? 
Sure. Let me go to, I've got the complaint pulled up on my computer. I'm going to just read through the claims really quickly here. It's a bit lengthy of a complaint. Again, this document I'm reading from can be found on fracaction.org. Lit hit the litigation tab, then select the brace case. We've got both our case, current cases up there, but select the brace case. Then you can pull up the complaint and you can also download all the exhibits. We had a whole bunch of exhibits on there, of letters and stuff. And it, and it really walks through the history of, of the arm brace, the regulatory history, the various letters. We've got statements from uh, myself, Mr. Cicero, Jeff Kramer of SB, their CEO. He gave us a statement as one of the exhibits. I mean, so we've got all that stuff to help paint the picture for, for listeners that want to see a, a comprehensive back history. Then the complaint itself walks the court through that as well. Now, as to the, the claims for relief here, uh, and I'm looking at page 37 of the complaint the first claim for relief is that the rule is is ultra vires, uh, meaning basically that the ATF exceeds their grant of authority from Congress. Okay, so you know we talk about administrative agencies. I think what a lot of people would refer to as like the the de facto fourth branch of government. Mm -hmm. uh, it's technically under the executive branch, but I think. It's become distinct enough that the that the administrative state is is gen generally looked at as a as a, a fourth branch of government. They get only the powers that that are delineated to them by Congress, mm -hmm. right? So they don't they don't get to just make law. Congress makes law, yeah. Um, and Congress can give them specific regulatory authorities with limits, clear delineated limits on that authority, and basically. This first claim says right here, paragraph 201, the rule is a final agency action that exceeds ATF statutory authority. And it talks about the conflict with law. And, you know, it, it even mentions here that the law exceeds the Second Amendment because these are in common use. Mm -hmm. 206. Now, the second claim for relief is that the rule is arbitrary and capricious and I guess I think in simple terms, I, I sort of think about this as detached from like rational logic, right? So, so if you know, there's a requirement that when regulatory agencies make rules under the APA, they cannot be arbitrary and capricious. They have they have to be grounded in, in reason and logic and all the things. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm trying to think of, a, of an easy analogy here, like with the speed limit or something. You know, if I was the guy who made the speed limits out on out on the street here, I you know, in Bismarck, you know, twenty five mile an hour is is a clear limit, right? It's not vague. We'll get to that in a moment. So twenty five miles per hour is a clear limit, right? You can get a speedometer and reasonably calculate how fast you're going and know if you're exceeding that limit. You know what twenty five miles per hour means. It's a scientific thing. So that you know that's not vague and. Is, you know, there's probably a rationality like in a neighborhood for making a speed limit 25 miles an hour. But now what if out on the interstate, they made the speed limit, you know, 27 miles an hour and they came up with that number by like shaking some dice in a <laughs> bowl and then pulling the dice out and being like, oh, two and seven, 27. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, it's kind of a foolish example, but, you know, that's something that I think would be arbitrary and capricious, right? So mm -hmm. 
there's obviously legal definitions as to what that means, but in plain speak, arbitrary and capricious rules are not allowed under the APA and the ATF's logic here is flawed. So this is an arbitrary and capricious thing. Third claim for relief, the adjudications under the new rule are ultra vires, meaning that the agents, kind of like we're talking about in the first claim for relief, the agency lacked authority delegated by Congress to do what they did, mm-hmm. not only in the rulemaking, but in their adjudications under the rule, because they do call out in some of the documents that were published on their website in conjunction with the rule, they call out various NFA articles or not excuse me, uh, various arm braced pistols that they claim are NFA under this rule. And this basically lays out how those assertions are, you know, are they're they're ultra vires. The agency didn't have authority and really kind of partners up with the first claim for relief, right? The rules ultra vires and the adjudications are ultra vires. Mm-hmm. Fourth claim for relief, the adjudications are arbitrary and capricious, right? So you're seeing a pattern here, right? The rules are arbitrary and capricious, the rules are ultra vires, the adjudications are arbitrary and capricious, the adjudications are ultra vires. All right. And then in the fifth claim for relief, we got the rule and adjudications being unconstitutionally vague. And this is goes back to that speed limit analogy I gave you. Mm-hmm. You know, if I told if I told you the speed limit on this street is going too fast. Right. And then you got a ticket and I'm like, I'm like, I pulled you over, like I'm like a police officer pulled you over and gave you a ticket for going too fast. And he points to the sign and says it's against the speed limit to go too fast. And like the speed limit sign says too fast on it. You know what I mean? Like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Right. You you have a constitutional right to be adequately put on notice of to what the law is. That doesn't mean that they have to take the law and like tape it to the wall, you know, in the grocery store or anything like the law. You know, it's, it's the citizens, you know, have some obligation to look up the law and learn it. But the law itself must adequately put people on notice of the conduct that is pres- that is banned that is prescribed by a law okay and basically this rule because we're talking about criminal statutes with the nfa you know we talk about how it's part of the tax code well it's backed up by massive felony penalties okay so you have a very se- severe law very heavy-handed law that is being applied in a very vague way by atf here mm-hmm. and uh that's you know there's there's due process right as interpreted by the courts against unconstitutional vague laws okay i don't i don't know if that's clear of what i'm trying to get at Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah essentially what this lawsuit is to kind of like i guess dumb it down is obviously overreach of like their legal power their authority it's vague and it is am i like i'm on the right like yes, this is yes. so this is I'm I'm kind of laughing to myself because when I lived in New York City I worked in the legal department for the New York Yankees and I proofread legal contracts and I'd proofread them and I'm like I don't even know what the hell I just read. <laughs> and I feel like that's why you know we hire these lawyers to kind of like okay so what does this mean? And so I do appreciate you you know taking the verbiage and which is what was the word ultra beeries ultra vires? Oh. Ultraviaries, yes. Yeah, I've actually never heard that word before, but I do appreciate you kind of, you know, putting this in more layman terms for us so that we understand exactly what's going on. 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, yeah, there's a lot of Latin that creeps up in law. So, you know, ultra vires is a Latin term. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. That's, you know, that's why, <laughs> that's why it's like, what, what does that mean? Right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, you know, and, and the vagueness thing, I think this, this fifth claim for relief here, this vague, this vague thing, not to beat a dead horse here, Ava, but I, I think that, you know, th- this is the one, I mean, all the whole rule, the whole rule bothers me. And I think all these claims are 100% on point in calling out ATF for their breach of law here. Okay, I want to be clear. I, I all of these claims are, are good to go, in my opinion. But this last one is the one that really—that's the one that kind of irks me. You know, like as a human being, as somebody who believes in justice and that people have a right to be treated fairly by the system, mm-hmm. right? And I, and I mean people. I don't just mean you know companies and businesses and industry. I mean like everyday people, like the consumers, like the people who own these these things, and they're supposed to. I mean, and all of this supposes that they even know about this rule, right? Like this rule, you know, the, the APA, when the government makes a rule, they notify the public. And I'm not on video, but I'm using air quotes right now. They notify the public by publishing a rule in the Federal Register. Mm-hmm. Okay. How many people, everyday people actually like wake up in the morning and go check the Federal Register for new regulatory enactments, right? Yeah. I'm going to take another quick break. Talk about IWI. If you guys are looking for a new EDC, definitely check out the Masada Slim. It's one of my favorite EDCs out there. They're showing up a lot more now. Several of my followers and patrons, they've gotten them. But definitely keep an eye out because it's just a matter of time before they're available in your store. If you haven't seen it yet, it's basically in between like a P365 and the P365 XL from Sig Sauer. And I'd say in terms of size, it has a 3.6 inch barrel. And like the other Masadas, it's optic ready out of the box. It's completely compatible with the shield optic footprint. So you could use like the Holosyn 507K Romeo Zero and similar like slim micro dots sites are the same as like the normal Masada if you want to change them. But so far I've actually been pretty happy with mine, but it's mostly because I just use the red dot. And then it comes with a flat trigger that's crisp and clean, nice reset, comes with two 13 round mags. And then also 10 round mags are available if you live in restricted States. If you guys want to check that out, MSRP is only 450, which is really Pretty amazing for such a great gun. Check it out at IWI.us. Don't forget to use the code GUNFUNNY15, all one word. That's going to get you 15% off your entire order. That's actually a really good point. And that's one of the biggest things that scares me is because I teach, you know, I'm a firearms instructor. I teach a lot of classes and I've been bringing this up. I used to not really like push politics in my classes and I don't really, I, I still obviously let the student decide for themselves, but you know, every now and then we'll get off on tangents and talk about politics. And I kind of go with it, even though I don't typically allow tangents in my classes because I don't want to waste people's time and I don't want it to be like a coffee donut class. But when it comes to politics, I like to inform people on what's going on. And the scary part is, is that a lot of people have no idea that this brace ban is even in effect, that this is even a thing. And it's one of those things, unless you're in the industry, you don't typically, you're not aware of it. And think about just, you know, overnight, how many, I mean, millions and millions of people are going to become criminals 
Whereas before they were law-abiding citizens, they, you know, they have their guns legally, they went through background checks, they did everything that they, you know, thought that they were doing legally. And then just overnight with just a stroke of a pen, now they're criminals and they don't even know it. I 100% agree with what, what you're, uh, where you're coming from on that. And, you know, and even the, the smaller category or the smaller amount of people that that do wake up in the morning and like check the federal register, right? Or fi- find out from from videos or, you know, reporters like yourself, you know, they might know that there's a brace rule, but then you get to the vagueness thing. Like even if you know that this rule exists, you read it and it's unclear, right? Like the cat, the factoring criteria that go with the rule at the end, you know, the, the, the factors that the ATF says they're going to look at to determine if a braced gun is, you know, actually an SBR. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's vague. Like a reasonable person could read that and, you know, two reasonable people can, can have two different conclusions as to something from reading that because it's vague. Yeah. It's not. Now the ATF put out, you know, they did put out some adjudications on certain models of braces and certain on certain firearms and said, we hold that like this firearm that has this brace on it, here's a picture, is an SBR. Like they did, that's the adjudications that we speak of. That was one of the documents that was posted on ATF's website in conjunction with the rule. So there is some, you know, specificity as to certain guns with certain braces on them there. However, you know, there's a plethora of brace technology out there that millions of people own. So it's certainly not, you know, an exhaustive list and an exhaustive clarification from ATF, right? So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, the vagueness thing irks me. And then obviously just the practical thing of people not even knowing to begin with. And, mm-hmm. and that's, a, that's an important thing to understand about this rule. There is no grandfather clause, you know, to the extent they give a grace period to file registration paperwork and to the extent they want to, they waive the tax or something, they being the ATF. Mm-hmm. So be it. But that's not a grandfather period because somebody who fails to take action. Yeah. Right. They give, they give people, you know, in the rule, they talk about, you know, these are the options for a non FFL, basically a, a regular consumer who owns one of these things. Here's your options. So say the ATF. If you don't take one of those, you know, one of those things the ATF is saying, if you don't choose one of those options and do it, the ATF is alleging that one, this rule is in effect, and then once the grace period's over, et cetera, like you are in unlawful possession of an SBR at that point, unregistered SBR. So say the ATF. Okay. That will so so somebody who owns one of these and it's like in their closet and like or in their gun safe and they don't touch it and they're just living their life, going to work, raising their family, doing all the good American things that we like seeing people do. You know, if they take no action, they at a certain date, they will become a criminal. They will be placed on the other side of the law Mm -hmm. by the ATF. There is no grandfather clause of like, you know, this is not like the assault weapons ban in the 90s where the ones that were already out there weren't touched, but Mm -hmm. only affected new ones. No, this this affects ones that are already in circulation. And obviously it affects new ones as well. For people who don't know, what are the options that ATF is giving people? Yeah, let me pull that up. I recall from I don't want I don't want to misspeak on this. I'm mm-hmm. not fairly certain off the top of my head, but I do want to. And um I just wanna kind of go off on a side note. So when I was flying to Shot Show, 
you know, if anyone's ever gone to SHOT Show before, a majority of the plane is going to be industry people. And I just remember being on the plane and like I had like probably half the plane talking about the, you know, the brace ban rule. And there's one guy in particular that I remember and he's like, hell yeah. He's like, I'm going to SBR all the things, free tax stamps. Yeah, I'm going to do it. And like everyone's just like, what an idiot. Like, it's not free. I mean, yeah, sure, they're waiving the $200 tax stamp, but essentially you're just registering your gun. You're just letting them know exactly like what you have. And if people are thinking, depending on the state, if people are thinking that you've already registered your gun, like I know here in Colorado, there's no registry. There's when you go to a gun store and you fill out a background check, all you're doing is basically the person behind the counter is going to check off if you're buying a pistol or rifle or an other. And only if your name or that firearm comes up will ATF then call. They'll do a trace. They'll be like, all right, this person's name came up in, you know, some sort of criminal charge or whatever. Or they're you're under investigation and they're like, what did they buy? You run, you know, the check and you see, OK, in the last couple of years, this is what they bought. Or if a gun, you know, the serial number comes up, they're going to say, okay, so we know that the manufacturer, they made this gun with this serial number. They sent it to this distributor who then sent it to this gun store. And then they just ask, you know, who did this gun get sold to? Let's say if they find it in a crime or something. But up until that point, the government doesn't know specifically what you have and what you don't have. You know, unless depending on like what state you're in, but I know in Colorado that's how it is. Well, yeah, I, I would agree with the general summary there. I mean, the, the four four seven three process is not technically a registry. Yeah, and registration of non NFA articles is actually prohibited by law. Obviously, one of the things that you know, one of those hot button issues that we've we've seen over the past two years, coincidentally enough. Is that you know the is the is the ATF improperly using mm -hmm. their audit authority over FFLs to create any sort of registries by you know attempting to digitize records and all this like they're you know historically the ATF when somebody goes out of business they submit all their old four four seven threes and stuff they keep on what they call it, microfilm I think it's what it's called like they take pictures of the forms yeah. and they don't digitize it because the digital database is too close to a registry. Exactly. So Which to my understanding, I think the NRA fought for that, correct? Yeah, it was part of, I, I believe historically it was one of the provisions in the Firearms Owner Protection Act in, in the 80s. Okay. I mean, you had like the Dole, the Dole Volcomer compromise where they got some, some in the FOPA, they got Firearm Owner Protection Act. They got some provisions like that, but they also got the 1986 machine gun ban. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there was a trade-off there, but be that as it may. Yeah, so so real quick here, the options for affected persons. You know, I'm on page six thousand five hundred and seventy of the Federal Register. This is volume eighty-eight, number twenty, Tuesday, January thirty-first, twenty twenty-three. This is within the brace rule itself, and it's this is uh, paragraph B, options for affected persons, and it says current unlicensed possessors. Now, the key thing here: what is an un? When they say unlicensed, they mean non-FFL. Okay. So just real quick, so if you have an FFL, what does that mean? A federal firearms licensee is like a dealer or a manufacturer. Yeah, so like I have an FFL and I have my SOT, but essentially that doesn't, I'm assuming that doesn't waive me from having a braced pistol, correct? It, no, it's, it's, it would still be an NFA article. The, the point I'm making at is, is that here in this section, they have different subsections for different 
categories of people. So like gotcha. there is a there is a portion in here that talks about current licensees. If you're a licensee and you have an SOT, if you're a licensee but you don't pay the SOT, the special occupational and you know the the NFA endorsement basically. Yeah. If you don't pay that, if you're a manufacturer, if you're just a dealer, uh, if you're a government agency, a state or local agency, this applies to them as well. Okay. I mean, so in terms of your your everyday consumer. You're not an FFL. You're an everyday consumer. You know, what are your options? Well, here, I'm going to read through those. Uh, the first one that they give is remove the short barrel and attach a 16 inch or longer rifle barrel to the firearm, thus removing it from the scope of the NFA. So, you know, obviously it can't be an SBR regardless of brace versus buttstock. It's not an SBR if it's got a full length barrel, like a full length rifle barrel is what they're saying. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing the ATF puts here. Second thing is submit through the e-form system, a form, an e-form one by May 31st, 2023. Uh, it talks about how you can adopt the markings without having to do additional engraving. You know, so anyway, that would be registering it as an SBR, basically. Mm -hmm. I don't want to keep. It's kind of one of the things we've been talking about here. And then the third option: permanently remove and dispose of or alter the stabilizing brace such that it cannot be reattached, thereby removing the weapon from regulation as a firearm under the NFA. So basically, saying, you know. Option one, swap the barrel out. Option three here would be removing the brace is what they're saying. And would the uh, buffer tube count? Would you have to remove the buffer tube as well? I don't want to, you know, I, and this is, Ava, I want to be careful not to try to yeah. get any sort of legal guidance, you know. There's vagueness there. I yeah. mean, the, the one of the criteria that Rule talks about looking at is is like rear surface area and stuff like that. So, you know, people got to do their due diligence on, on the sort of the buffer tube thing and and then you have to worry about what's known as constructive possession. I mean, they're talking about destroying the brace because then you're not in constructive possession of the of the, the brace with the pistol. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's there's some complications there. Uh, but anyway, the fourth option: turn the firearm into your local ATF office. Fifth option: destroy the firearm. And yeah, those are the five options they give unlicensed folks. Now, some of them, and this is just at the federal level. Some consumers might live in a state that does not allow them to have an SBR as a matter of state law. Okay, so just like prior to this rule, there's people that were in a state that like they could have a braced pistol, but they could not – the ATF would deny an application to make an SBR because of a state restriction on that. So in that instance, you know, people's options could be limited further from these five options – people's options could be limited further as a matter of those state level restrictions, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, again, that's, there's, you know, there's 50 states and however, you know, 50 states, four territories, you know, DC. I mean, there's all these, it's too lengthy for me to try to get into, you know, how the, the people need to do their research, talk to an attorney in their area if they need to and, and figure out what, what the best option is for them. And then Travis, I'm sorry, I'm going to take one last break. And that's to talk about Franklin Armory. Mm -hmm. 
If you haven't gone binary yet, you definitely have to. It's a whole new level that you just can't really get enough of. Franklin Armory's AR trigger is one of the easiest binary triggers to install since it drops in just like a normal AR trigger. They come with the enhanced buffer springs for enhanced flexibility, and it works with most AR platforms and calibers, including 5.56, 308, 9mm, rimfire, and others. They're compatible with most bolt carrier groups and give you a third binary mode with one round on the squeeze of the trigger and one on release. One thing to note is the ARS, it's for a straight trigger, and then the ARC1 is for a curved trigger. That's literally just the difference. It's if you want a curved trigger or a straight trigger. Both of these are on sale right now, though, for $386.99. But if you use the code AVA, that's A-V-A, you're going to get 10% off your entire order, and that is franklinarmory.com. And then what about gun stores and also manufacturers? I have to believe, you know, I mean, even these manufacturers, so like IWI, they have like actually just this weekend, I wanted to shoot my, uh, what the hell is it called? My Uzi and it has a brace on it and my camera guy is like, eh, don't shoot it. And I'm like, well, I could still shoot it and post a video of it. It's not like the 60 days or the hundred at this time I was thinking 120 days were up, but now I'm like, okay, so for all the manufacturers, IWI, like, are they not sending out guns that have braces on them now for the people, the gun stores that have all these guns that have braces that are AR pistols? Like, what are they supposed to do? Like, think about how much money they're out on top of yes. that. So that's a good point. And they, and they do talk about options for your everyday gun store. That would be somebody with like a type one FFL. Mm hmm. And they may or may not have paid the SOT. So yeah. if they paid the SOT, they'd be a class three dealer or a class three SOT. If they haven't, they would just be a type one FFL. It's your everyday dealer of firearms. Okay. You know, they, they do have an obligation. So say the ATF to comply with the rule. And the key thing here is that I think, you know, I think I mentioned this at the beginning is that the ATF is saying that as of the date of this rule publication, those are SBRs. So they're not. You cannot transfer it until it has been brought into compliance. Hmm. So if prior to the rule dropping, you know, we'll say in December, if somebody had bought a braced pistol, well, that was prior to the rule dropping. Come January 31st, if they tried to go buy that same braced pistol, it's an NFA article. So the dealer would have to bring it into registration compliance and then transfer it as an NFA article thereafter. There, There is no... And the same thing applies amongst uh, people, you know, you know, if, if I own a braced pistol and, you know, prior to this rule dropping, that was a handgun, right? So just like with most Title I firearms, you can loan it to your buddy to go hunting, right? Something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, now as an NFA article, you cannot because that's a transfer. Mm -hmm. That's a train. Now you would have to do a form forward and transfer it out, which obviously to do a form forward has to be first registered on, a, you know, usually a form one. But you know, so that's that's the that's the key thing here is that the dealers they have to bring this inventory into compliance before they can do anything with it. What do you think? I'm, I'm kind of curious to see or to hear from like the gun stores and to see what they're doing because I have to imagine in the back they all have boxes filled with just braces, <laughs> just like you know, kind of at like a loss. Like, what do we do with this? And then. It, it you know, and, and it kind of goes back to like, I've heard, you know, I mean, I think ultimately ATF would love to shut down, you know, tons of gun stores. And I wonder if this is also kind of a way for them to sort of speed that process up. 
I certainly hope that I mean, I mean, I, I think that everything we've seen over the past two years would point to that conclusion, Ava. I, I don't disagree with you. Mm-hmm. I don't want to believe that to be true, but I yeah. mean, you know, the realist in me is like, you know, probably a reasonable observation, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I- there's a huge financial impact to your, to your initial point. You know, this, this rule has had a tremendous financial impact on the industry that that cannot be overstated. Mm-hmm. Which isn't there a law that you can't ban something or you can't take somebody's property without paying them? Yeah, yeah, and it's actually it's not even a law; it's the U.S. Constitution, the takings clause. Uh huh. So, so yeah, that I mean, there is there is that. The courts, however, have taken a more narrow interpretation of that. You know, yeah. I think a layperson, myself included, you know. Those of us outside of the courts would would probably look at a lot of what the government does. It's like you're you're telling me I have to you know give up my stuff or pay you money or I get my stuff taken from me, mm-hmm. even though Fail you like paid for it and did everything. You know, yeah. That that most most people would look at that as a takings issue, but not not the courts. You know, yeah. like not necessarily right. So it's complicated. You know. Yeah. But yeah. All right. Let's kind of wrap it up a little bit. So one, you did mention early on that you can become a FRAC member. Is that kind of like a like a member where you have a membership and you pay dues yearly or something like that? Or Yeah, we do have membership. We are an industry trade organization. That's that's one I'm glad you brought this up. We interact with a lot of other organizations that what I would call civil rights organizations. And that would be like NRA and GOA and, and you know FPC. You know these are and, and I wish all of them well. And but they they look more broadly at Second Amendment, you know, civil rights things. Mm-hmm. We are a trade organization for the industry, and so what I like to say is we deal with Second Amendment related issues, but we are not a civil rights organization. And so with that. Our membership base is members of the industry, companies. Companies gotcha. can join. Okay. So if 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 you're out there and you're listening and and, and you know you're you're a consumer, we are grateful for your support and you can absolutely go to our website and make a donation through our website. We have a donations uh, button on there, mm-hmm. uh, but there's no mechanism for you know an everyday consumer to be able to join this organization because that's outside of our our purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that it's, makes sense. I'm glad yeah. I asked that. And then as far as you also have a link on your website, contact officials, and there's lots of different options there. Does that mm-hmm. bring you to, because I know a lot of people, they want to contact their representatives, but they're not even sure who their representatives are. No. So contact officials, I believe that, I'm going to pull it up real quick. I believe that is actually to contact FRAC. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. <laughs> Let, let me just pull that up to make sure I'm looking at the right. Oh, contact officials. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. No, the contact officials button is to sign on to letters, various letters that we've done where we do these one-click campaigns where it, it helps auto-generate a letter template. People can modify it and then send it off to their representatives. That is the contact officials button. The okay. contact us button is you guys. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Perfect. And then 
Let's see. Cause I know that you have to go, you, you have a meeting and I actually just really appreciate your time. Just even taking an hour just to discuss everything. I'm trying to think what else. So what can people do? Is there anything, I mean, at this point, is it, cause I personally, I'm just going to tell you guys right now, I'm not registering anything. I'm not doing the $200 tax stamp. If anything, I'll remove the brace. If I have to add a longer barrel, but that's it. Because I do think that this is going to get overthrown. It's going to be just like the bump stock ban. And even then, I mean, when they said like they had, you know, you could turn them in or you could destroy them. I don't even think that that many people turn them in. It was an extremely low number. But then again, it could have been where a lot of people weren't even aware of what was going on. And here they own bump stocks. But I don't plan on doing the $200 tax stamp. But is there anything, I mean, is this kind of at this point, we all have our hands tied behind our back until litigation takes place, which unfortunately is probably going to take years, correct? Well, so so a few things on that. You know, I, I want to. I do want to say at the outset, I want to be careful not to try to give. You know, it's not my place to give people legal advice, and it's also not my place to tell people how to think. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to give them information and tell you know, kind of give them the things to think about. First off, uh, you know, people should look at this with a level head, a cool level head. Assess their options. Consult with their legal counsel to make sure they're compliant both with the federal rules and then as it's applied in their state, any state level restrictions and rules, you're not doing anybody any favors if you go out and get arrested. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want to make that clear. So assess the options, choose your course of action, keep a level head, please don't get arrested. <laughs> right? The litigation, we've got three key cases, two down in Texas and then, and then our case here in North Dakota dealing with this. There is, uh, I know of at least ours and the one of them in Texas, it might be both now, but at least one of them down there is asking for a preliminary injunction. We should be getting some resolution of the PI motions within, I would say the next month or so. I can't promise that. I, you know, that's the courts and all that, like they control that. I'm just, I'm looking into my crystal ball and I'm, I'm hoping that within the next month or so, we get some indication or or get an actual ruling from the courts, either in our case or in the other cases in Texas, as to some a preliminary injunction, basically some immediate relief from the courts, basically stepping in to protect the parties and, and really protect the American people from this rule and, and from the ATF here. We should hopefully be getting that soon enough. But again, I don't wanna I don't wanna, you know, make any promises that I, I certainly don't control. Mm-hmm. So yeah, now with that, so PI get, gets ruled on, and then that uh, you know PI motion is something that can be taken up on on what's called interlocutory appeal. Generally, so you know depending on how those turn out and how some things go, there is a chance that they could be taken up on on immediate appeal and get some resolution from an appellate court. However long that takes, you know that that the appellate court can take its time, but. Or I should say the appellate courts can sometimes be a lengthy process to get through. But, you know, immediate relief is hopefully coming. And, and I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic in our case, and I'm optimistic in the ones down in Texas that we will hopefully see some, you know, pre- PIs being granted by the courts in the near future. I hope. Mm-hmm. I'm optimistic, can't make any promises. But yeah, take that for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I'm just kind of wrapping up. So people who want to support you, what is your website? And obviously that's where they can go to make donations, correct? 
Yes. And it's fracaction.org. Okay. And that's F-R-A-C. And then if they want to follow you on social media, I see you guys are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Are you yes. also on best, YouTube or no? No, we don't we don't have a YouTube, but I, okay. I do think that probably the best of those would be Instagram. Okay. And what is that? Is it just frack? Uh, frack action. Frack action. Okay. All right. Awesome. And I also, I mean, I would assume it's probably still a good idea to go to your website and click on the contact officials and still write those letters, which you guys have made it really easy. I actually just did it again. I've done this so many times. I'm sure all my officials, all all the representative in Colorado are are familiar with my name now (laughs) because I just keep bombarding them with it. And I think so it's kind of nice because I I did, you know, I went to the act now to stop the ATF's brace ban before it's too late, clicked on learn more. And then it's kind of nice because you, you just put in your information, your address. So it does pull up exactly like with your zip code, who your officials are. And then you guys have a pre-written letter and it goes out. But what people don't realize, and I have said this in the past, is they do document every letter. And I think that if we just continue to flood people's inboxes and they know that you know, people are against this as opposed to just being quiet that that will, you know, hopefully push them to take a stand and hopefully possibly in our favor, depending on what side they are. So I would say, you know, even though that this is already in effect, I would say I would still do it. But thank you, Travis. I do appreciate your time and um, best of luck. If there's anything that I could help you with, just let me know. Don't hesitate by all means. Awesome. And thank you, Ava. Thank you so much for having me on. And and I look forward to uh, hopefully coming on again sometime. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening to the show. As always, really appreciate it. There's no iTunes reviews today. If you guys haven't, go ahead, head on over to if you have like a iPhone in the podcast app, click on that search for gun funny, scroll down, leave a review. It's pretty easy. Always appreciate hearing from you guys. Also wanted to thank the $25 Patreons who are Corbin Bonafide, Iraq Veteran 8888, Say Colsters, Justin Paulson, Jason Anderson, Daniel Treadwell, Keith Callamore, Daniel Lee, Nick Theodosian, Tristan Smith, and Melissa Ridings. And then, of course, King of the Patreon, Jon Snow. And once again, Travis, really appreciate you coming on. If you guys want to find out any other information about the podcast, just head on over to gunfunny.com. And I will talk to you guys next week. Want to send feedback? Tell us about a company or anything else. Go to gunfunny.com forward slash contact.